Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, continuing our study through the book of Luke. This morning we'll be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 5, and then we're going to skip down towards the end of the chapter and read verses 30, or 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This is Jesus, standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, Paul compares God's work in the lives of human beings to a potter who is creating different kinds of pottery out of the same lump of clay. In regard to those whom he is saving from sin and destruction, Paul says that God is creating, quote, vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Since my wife a few years ago took up a hobby of making pottery, I have had a deeper appreciation for this metaphor in scripture. As I've watched her do it, I've realized there is a long process in making a pot. There's the preparing of the clay in advance. There's the centering of the clay on the wheel. There's the pulling up of the walls of the pot. There's the shaping of it, the very careful shaping of it, the firing of it, and then the glazing of it, and then firing it again. And it's really a long process. There's also a long process in God's work of saving us. As Romans 8 describes it, it uses these words, 
Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the very long process of God the potter making vessels of mercy prepared for glory. It begins before the foundation of the world, and it doesn't end until after the second coming into eternity future. What's interesting is in that salvation process, in that process of creating a disciple of Jesus Christ who follows Christ and looks like Christ, we don't actually become fully aware of God working in us until well into the process. Well after he has already begun his work. When I share my testimony with someone, I will say that I made a profession of faith and became a Christian when I was 16 years old. That's when I finally understood the gospel. I understood why Jesus came to die on the cross. I understood that he was the eternal son of God who became man and dwelt in our midst, lived a perfect life, and then offered up his life as a sacrifice on the cross in my place. And he there on the cross bore the penalty for my sin, the hell that I deserve for eternity. I understood that, and I believed it, and I committed my life to follow him. I call myself a Christian from the time I was 16 on. But now, in hindsight, I look back on my life before that, and I realize the Holy Spirit was working in me long before that. Long before that, I became aware that God is real. He exists, and somehow he knows about me. And I struggled. I was seeking for peace. I was seeking for forgiveness, but I didn't know how to find it. And I was under, coming under greater conviction of sin. And that was the Holy Spirit preparing the ground, plowing the ground, fertilizing the ground, getting ready for the seed of the word to come to be planted. You see, God's work in making a disciple begins long before we understand that he's actually working. Since that day, the, the process continues. He is still making me over as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The work of sanctification is a long, slow, fitful, sometimes frustrating process. But God is faithful, and he is still making me a disciple over into the image of Jesus Christ. We can see this same slow process working in the early disciples in the, in the pages of Scripture, in the pages of the New Testament. It doesn't, sometimes it doesn't seem that way. The gospel writers often condense the story. They have so much to tell us in so short a space that sometimes they condense the story of how disciples came to follow Christ. And the, probably a perfect example is the second example that we read just a moment ago about Levi. Levi, who later other gospels call Matthew, actually Matthew's gospel, he calls himself Matthew, but he had two names, and Levi and Matthew are the same person. But as you read what happened to Levi, it says... Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And you're like, wow, that was fast. You know, it's like, how did that happen? How did he just suddenly, it's like, you get the, you get the sense reading that, that Jesus walked along, he was a stranger, didn't know anything about Jesus, and Jesus walks up and talks to him, and he said, okay, I'll follow you, I'll leave my whole life behind and follow you, but we know it didn't happen that way. It wasn't like he, Jesus, sometimes we think of Jesus like the Pied Piper walking through the Judean countryside, you know, just some magical power caused people to come to him like a magnet. But no, it was a process. It was always a process. The people, including these disciples, had heard Jesus teaching. They had seen his miracles. 
They had heard all the buzz about him, all the controversy about who he was. There was a process that the Spirit used to draw them to Christ. We also know that their training, and these were faithful Jews, their training in the Old Testament, that was God by the Holy Spirit plowing the ground so that they would understand who Jesus was when he came. So when we come to Luke 5, we're going to look at the calling of two disciples and how the process of making a disciple happens by looking at the example of Peter and Levi or Matthew. And what we realize when we compare this passage of Scripture with the other gospel accounts is that God was using other people as part of that process. In John chapter 1, it tells the story of how Andrew, who was actually Peter's brother and also his co-laborer, a fellow fisherman who worked with Peter, Andrew actually became a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist introduced Andrew to Jesus. And Andrew sat under the teaching of Jesus for a whole day. And then, after all of that, he goes to Peter and said, come and meet Jesus. We think we found the Messiah. It's a process. And God uses other people in the process of bringing us to Christ, that we might become disciples. In the passages that we look at as these encounters with Jesus happen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John... They all became, they become disciples of Jesus at that point in John chapter 1, but they didn't leave their homes, they didn't leave their families, they didn't leave their vocations as fishermen, but they considered themselves disciples of Jesus. Well, here in chapter 5, this is later. And in this encounter with Jesus, what Jesus does is he calls these disciples to a greater understanding of who he is, a greater understanding of what it means to follow him, and he calls them to make the commitment, the whole life commitment to be his disciple. It's actually later, there's another stage in the future from this point, when Jesus is actually going to go away, pray, and then come back and appoint 12 disciples to be the apostles, the ones who would represent him after his death and resurrection. And so it's a process. After we are called and elected by God before creation. That's when the process of making a disciple begins, before creation. This call of God enters into time and space and history when the Holy Spirit comes to us as dead spiritually, sinners, broken, rebellious, unresponsive spiritually. He comes to us and he takes away our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, In the language of John 3, he makes us able to see the kingdom of God so that we might enter the kingdom of God. And that's how we start to become aware of the Holy Spirit working in us. The next step is where the story picks up here in Luke chapter 5, which is the hearing of the word of Christ. Once the heart has been changed, then it's ready to receive the seed of the word. One day, Jesus comes to Peter's workplace on the shore of the Lake of Gennesaret, and the other gospel writers call that the Sea of Galilee. It's the same body of water, about 13 miles long, seven miles wide, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. Peter and his co-workers are on the shore. They're cleaning their nets after a long, hard, frustrating night of fishing on the lake because they didn't catch any fish. Probably the worst night of fishing they ever had. The crowds have come with Jesus. At this point in his ministry, the crowds are following him around. 
And the crowds come with him. And so here's Peter and, his, and Andrew and James and John, and they're cleaning their nets, and, and their boats are there on the shore. And all these people come, and, and Luke says that they crowd in on Jesus to hear his word. They're so anxious to hear his teaching. They're crowding in on him. And you get the idea that Jesus has gotten backed up to the shoreline. And he's starting to feel claustrophobic. And so what he does is he says to Peter, he says, can I use one of your boats? And he steps into the boat and he asks Peter to push it out a little ways from the shore. And it's actually an ingenious way to preach and teach because you've got the shoreline, which is kind of a natural amphitheater. And then you've got the calm water, like a kind of a natural sound system, so to speak, amplifier to amplify his teaching. And so he begins to teach the people. This emphasizes the role of the word of Christ in making a disciple. The word of Christ is central to the process of making a disciple. You know, words are amazing things. We take them for granted. But it's how we know one another. I mean, when we come in contact with each other in time and space and physically we're in the same place, how do we get to know one another? How do we connect? It's through our words. What an amazing gift God has given to, to men and women and children that are made in his image is that my soul can connect with your soul. The only way we can do that is by me speaking words and you hearing those words and receiving them. And through our words, we make connection. And it's actually through words, you think as a, as a man and a woman eventually come together to be husband and wife, it's words that makes that first connection. And the relationship grows through good communication of words to one another. But when we communicate ourselves, when I want to communicate my soul to your soul, I'm going to use words in a sinful way. I'm going to use words in a way that reflect my fallen nature. I'm going to want to try to put forth the best image of myself that I possibly can. And I'm going to distort who I really am to try to make you think I'm a better person than I really am. Because I'm a sinner, so I'll try to deceive with my words or hide with my words. But when Jesus speaks to us, he's perfect. He's got no sin to hide. He has no inclination to distort this communication of who he is to us. His words are perfect. And through his words, we get to know him perfectly. The words of Jesus Christ are essential in making a disciple. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. No one is saved without faith. And no one exercises faith without hearing the word of Christ. The word of God is essential in making a disciple. Those are the hands of the potter on the pliable clay. It's the word of Christ forming us into his image. Peter would later write to the Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. As the Holy Spirit enters into a spiritually dead sinner and gives him a new heart the way that that heart comes alive and you see the life flowing out of it is as by the way in which it responds to the preaching and teaching of the word of christ that's how you encounter christ is through his word and so it's essential in making a disciple foundational the second stage of discipleship we see here is trusting christ 
When Jesus was finished teaching, he told Peter and his co-workers to take the boat out into the deepest part of the lake and to put their nets down into the water. Now remember, they'd fished all night in that lake and came back with no fish. They're tired. They're discouraged. They're frustrated. And you can imagine Peter like, you've got to be kidding me, Jesus. I'm not going back out there. He thinks it's crazy talk for two reasons. One is he knows as an experienced expert fisherman, you don't catch fish out in the deepest part of the lake. You catch the fish in the shallow parts of the lake. Secondly, you don't catch fish in the middle of the day. Jesus has been teaching for half a day. You don't catch fish in the middle of the day. You catch fish at night. That's why they had been fishing at night. You can imagine the temptation that Peter might have had. He might have been sitting there thinking to himself, Jesus, I don't teach, you're a carpenter and a rabbi. I don't teach you how, I don't tell you how to preach, so don't tell me how to fish. But do you notice what he says? Peter had heard Jesus' word. Jesus, he had seen Jesus heal, he had seen Jesus cast out demons. He had actually seen Jesus heal his own mother-in-law of a deathly disease. And so, what does Peter say? He says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. You see what's happening here? At your word, because you said so. It doesn't fit my experience. It doesn't fit my feelings. It doesn't fit my training. But because I trust your word over all of that, I will do what you tell me to do. That's called trusting in the word of Christ. Hearing, believing, trusting in the word of Christ over all other ideas and authorities. Peter puts the word of Christ over his own experience and feeling and expertise. And every true disciple must do the same thing as well. Faith in Christ means trusting his word and obeying it no matter what our feelings or experiences or training may be. And how does that apply to your life? You know, I think about parents when it comes to this. It used to be one of my favorite phrases when my children would come to me and I, I would tell them, go clean your room or go do the dishes or go feed the dog. When I'd give them instructions, as they got a little older, eventually the questions start. Well, why? Why should I do that? You know, they, they want you to justify the reason that you told them to do it. And I, one of my favorite phrases was because I said so. That's why you should do it, because I said so. And I'm not, you know, and I, believe me, I, I think it's not very popular in parenting these days because it's more popular to negotiate with your children. But, you know, because I said so is an important lesson for a kid to learn. And parents, you can abuse it. And I've seen, I've, I've abused it. I'm sure you've abused it too. You can use that badly. But it is a lesson they need to learn, that they need to trust your word. Because they're not going to understand why it's important that they do certain things. They're not mature enough, they're not knowledgeable enough, they're not experienced enough to know why it's important that they do something. They need to trust your word, that you're wiser than they are. And they need to trust your authority. And that's exactly what Peter does here. At your word, I'm going to do something that seems absolutely silly in my experience and feeling and training. Because I trust your word. It's essential in the making of a disciple. Which brings us to the next step in discipleship, which is the painful step of coming to fear Christ. When they went out, lowered their nets, 
They brought them up, and there were so many fish in those nets that the nets started to break. And when they pulled the nets, with the help of their co-workers, they pulled the net into the boat. The boat started to sink. There were so many fish in the nets. Now, how would you have responded in that moment if you were Peter? I don't know. I know some of us would have pulled out a calculator and started figuring out our profit. You know, like, wow, man, I don't have to work for two weeks with this catch of fish, man. Or maybe some of us would have started bailing out the water because the boat's going to sink. And you're out of fear. You're fear fear for your life because the boat might sink in the deepest part of the lake. But no, Peter falls on his knees before Christ. He falls on his knees before Christ and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter is overcome by a sudden awareness of the power, authority, holiness, and glory of Jesus Christ. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage. He says, the sight of divine greatness and holiness makes Peter feel strongly his littleness and sinfulness. And like Adam after the fall, his first thought is to hide. Do you notice that Peter calls him Lord? Earlier he had addressed him as master, but now he calls him Lord. And if you study the New Testament, what you realize is that when, the disciple, when a disciple calls Jesus Lord, he's not just calling him master, he's not just calling him sir, he's calling him the son of God. He's basically attributing to him divinity because the word Lord in the Greek is the word that is used for Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Old Testament in the Greek language. When disciples call Jesus Lord, they're acknowledging that he is the divine son of God. Did Peter fully understand this at this point? Probably not. But he's beginning to understand that Jesus is not just a carpenter. Jesus is not just a rabbi. Jesus is not just a wise teacher. Jesus is somehow God. And he's beginning to realize it. He had seen, as as Pastor Ben had shared last week, he had seen how Jesus had shown dominion as the eternal Son of God. He'd shown dominion over the demons, the spiritual realm, by casting out demons at his word. He had shown dominion over disease and brokenness by healing the sick. But here, Jesus takes dominion over creation. He shows himself to be Lord of the seas and Lord of the fish and all other creatures. We have the mystery here of the union between Jesus' divine nature and his human nature. Somehow, Jesus didn't just somehow know where the fish were. He put them there because they wouldn't have been there otherwise. That's not where fish gather in the middle of the day. He put them there so that Peter could catch them. Jesus is Lord of the fish. Jesus is Lord of the sea. Jesus is Lord of creation. And as Peter realizes this, he falls on his knees, overwhelmed with the glory of Christ. Later, Jesus would walk on the sea and invite Peter to join him by faith. Later, he would speak to a violent storm and stop it by the power of his word alone. Later, he would tell Peter to go and pick out and and, and fish for one particular fish. And when he pulled it out of the water, it had a coin in his mouth that Jesus made sure was there so that he could pay the taxes. Jesus is Lord of all creation. The fear that Peter feels in this moment is the same fear that Isaiah had when he had a glimpse of the glory of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ as he was seated on his throne 
800 years, he has this, before Peter, Isaiah has this vision of the glory of Christ. And how does he respond? Same way Peter does. Woe is me, for I am undone. Peter is so overcome by the glory of Christ, this infinite distance between who he is as a sinful man and and this glorious, holy Christ. And he's overcome by his guilt and his shame and his sense of unworthiness. And he asked Jesus to leave. He asked Jesus to leave. And I'm sure that Peter is eternally grateful that Jesus did not say yes to that prayer. You see, realizing your unworthiness and fearing the judgment of Christ because of your sin is a necessary step in the making of a disciple. But notice how Jesus responds to Peter's being undone by his holiness and power. How does Jesus respond? He says in verse 10, do not be afraid. How could he say to a sinner like Peter, do not be afraid? Because Jesus knew why he came. Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. Peter didn't fully understand what was going to happen at the cross. He didn't, he's still struggling to understand all this. He doesn't understand about the cross yet. But Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid, Peter. For I will cover your sin. I will pay for your sin. Jesus came to transform our terror in the presence of a holy God as sinners in his sight, to transform that terror cowering in the presence of a holy God, to transform that into what the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord, which is reverential, which is loving, which is intimate, which is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of life. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. You need to fear me, Peter, but fear me as a redeemed sinner and a son of the living God. You know, Levi, when you go to Levi's conversion, it didn't require a mind-blowing miracle to be convinced that he was a sinner deserving eternal condemnation. That's, I think, because Levi was a tax collector. We've talked about tax collectors before. They were the the uh, representatives of the, Ro- the oppressing, hated Roman government, the ones who, who extorted taxes, tolls, tariffs from the people so that their enemy, the Roman Empire, could oppress them more. They were seen as traitors and collaborators. They were the lowest of sinners in the eyes of the Jews. That's why people like Levi and Zacchaeus other tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes. That's why they so quickly came to Jesus. They didn't need a miraculous catch of fish or some grand miracle to show them that they are a sinner before this holy one. Like the other tax collector whom Jesus saw in the temple who cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's really what Levi is saying in this short phrase. As Jesus said to the judgmental Pharisees in verses 31 and 32, the ones who judged him for associating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, he said to them that he came for those who would recognize that they're spiritually sick, those who recognize they're unworthy, those who recognize that they are sinners who deserve condemnation, and that he has nothing to offer those who think that they are righteous in and of themselves those that are blind to their sin. 
those that self-justify. That brings us to the fourth step in making of a disciple, which is to leave all in order to follow Christ. Look at verse 11. Peter, James, and John left everything and followed him. In verse 28, talking about Levi, says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. When you think about it, really, Levi is paying the bigger price here to leave and follow Christ because he was probably filthy rich, and I mean literally filthy rich because of his extortion of taxes. He was probably a very wealthy man. And when he left the job of being a tax collector, he wouldn't get it back again in the future if he changed his mind. Peter actually did go back to fishing for a little while after the crucifixion of Christ, if you remember the account. But Levi could never go back. He left everything in order to follow Jesus. Jesus made the terms of discipleship clear over in chapter 14. Listen to what he says there, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, And so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Later in chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell a rich ruler that in order to follow him, what he has to do is go and sell all his belongings and give the money to the poor and then come and follow him. As you are being made into a disciple, you realize more and more that that's what it means to follow Christ, is that you leave behind everything that you treasure and make him the focus of your treasure in life. He is your treasure. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, most of the people in this room, when they decided to follow Christ, didn't give up their family, didn't give up their home, didn't give up their job. What does it mean to believe everything and follow Christ? What Jesus is talking about here really is the first commandment. The first commandment given to Moses, book of Exodus, says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what God says. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is saying, as the Son of God, I will not just be part of your life. I will not just be the Lord of your Sunday or the Lord of your Wednesday night or the Lord of your six to seven o'clock in the morning. I am the Lord of your life. You must have no other gods before me. I will not tolerate idolatry. To become a disciple of Christ is to make him your life. I've heard non-Christian parents who have their children, maybe their adult children or teenage children when they become a Christian, I've heard this actually said to the unbelieving parent, says to the believing child, I'm okay with you want to be religious, just don't become a fanatic about it. And it's just not an option when it comes to Christ. If you want to follow Christ, he becomes your life, he becomes Lord. That's what it means. He doesn't become Savior without becoming your Lord as well. After the rich ruler, though, rejects Christ, Peter says to him, Peter, he says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. We've, we, we obeyed your call there, Lord. We did it. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, that's what the disciple comes to understand, is that when you subjugate your family, your job, your identity, your possessions, your wealth, whatever it is, it, once you bring those under the lordship of Christ and submit them to his lordship and follow his word in the way that you interact with these persons and things, 
what happens is, is he gives them back to you in a much better form, a much better family, a much better sense of possession and place and status and identity in the world. And he gives you eternal life, all these things in their perfected form for eternity. So you're just exchanging the flawed and the temporary, the, the, the limited goods of this world for the eternal goods of his kingdom. That's what he's talking about. You must leave all and follow him. He is Lord. Which brings us to the final step of the making of a disciple in this world, which is in verse 10, where Jesus tells them that they must begin proclaiming him and his word. Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, from now on you'll be catching men. You'll be catching men. You've been catching fish, now you're going to catch men. It's interesting, the word in the Greek is actually a combination of the word catch and life. In other words, you're going to catch men and women and children for life. Instead of catching fish in order to kill them and eat them, you're going to catch men in order to give them life. The ultimate catch and release. And that's what Peter did. Day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, he stood and he preached Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. And 3,000 plus came to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Levi left all to follow Christ and he throws a banquet and he invites all his tax collector and sinner friends to come and meet Jesus. You see, when he delivers you, he frees you, he takes away your sin and he adopts you into the family of God that's the way a disciple responds, is I've got to tell others. I've got to share this with people who need to know the Jesus that I've come to know. What draws people to Christ is when we share his word. Remember, his word is essential to making and developing disciples. We share his word, and then we celebrate his grace through our worship. Sharing his word and celebrating his grace is how we draw others to know Christ. God is the potter. We are the vessels of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory. We are in process. Where are you in the process this morning? Where are you in the process of the making of a disciple? Are you listening to the word of God? You're being drawn, you're interested, you're curious, listening to the word of Christ, finding it intriguing. Maybe you're in the beginning stages of being a disciple of Christ. Are you learning and beginning to trust in the word of Christ? Starting to put the word of Christ over what you're being taught in the classroom. Putting the word of Christ over what you desire, over your, your hobbies, over your, your pleasures in life, over your lusts, over your relationships in life. You're starting to trust the word of Christ and obey even when you don't understand. Are you beginning to fear Christ, to see that he is so much more than what you used to think he was, that he is truly the son of God. He is the creator of the universe, and he is the judge of all mankind before whom all will have to stand one day. And because of the gospel, are you beginning to understand that he has taken away your fear of his judgment and condemnation and replaced it with peace with God? Are you maybe stuck in that fourth stage that I talked about, surrendering all. But as you call yourself a disciple, but really Jesus is just part of your life. He's not really Lord. 
Is that how, would that really describe your life? Maybe you're stuck at number that fourth stage. And then finally, are you sharing Christ with others because you love him so much and you see what he's done in your life? You know, and it really helps to understand that we're all in process. There was a bumper sticker I used to see on cars all the time. I haven't seen it for a long time, but it was very common to see a Christian drive by with this saying on the back of their car. It said, be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. And I actually thought that was kind of rude when I first read it because I misinterpreted it. I thought it meant, you know, I'm talking to God. You get in line, you know, I'm first or what, you know, I don't know how I misinterpreted it, but I thought it was a rude statement. But then I came to realize later what he's saying is God's still working in me. I'm a work in progress. Please be patient with me because he's going to complete his work. You know, and I think as we deal with one another as brothers and sisters of Christ, if we are willing to look at each other as disciples who are in process, it'll help us to be much more patient with each other. But the hope is, is that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of judgment. He will complete what he's begun. That's the promise of Philippians 1. And that's the promise I leave you with today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've chosen us. Thank you that you've called us. Thank you that you've regenerated us, given us the gift of faith and repentance, that you have justified us because of our faith in Christ, and you've adopted us into your family. Thank you for the ongoing work of sanctification that is transforming us over into the image of Christ very slowly and patiently. And thank you that we have the sure hope of glorification being like Christ completely and being perfectly united with Christ in body and soul for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, because this is the final step in the process of the making of a disciple, and you will not fail to complete your work. Thank you, Lord, for that security and peace that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.